Man, well, happy Family Sunday. Um, I just want to say happy Memorial Day. Um, our hearts break for those who've lost loved ones, friends, um, family who have died serving our country. And, um, you know, this is not a day, uh, a day that we say, oh, I'm so glad I have tomorrow off work, though probably all of us have said that. Um, I, I get it, but this is so much more than just a three-day weekend, a little mini vacation. This is a day that really commemorates loss and, and, and sacrifice, and a lot of the things and principles that this country was built on that seem to be forgotten oftentimes. And so um, thank you. If uh, you have served in the military, served our country, um, thank you for those who have stood by those who have served and, and have done that so faithfully. Uh, it means so much, and I don't take it for granted, and I know that uh, I speak for, I hope everyone in this room, that we don't take those freedoms for granted. Amen? Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are taking a break from the plagues. Is anybody a little bit relieved? <laughs> yeah? Like, what else could go wrong? Pharaoh, just give up, okay? Uh, but, you know... Uh, we, we kind of looked at it and said it's Family Sunday, and um, this is a passage I taught just recently in our young adult uh, study in a much more succinct manner, and so I'm excited to get to kind of dive into the text a little bit more this morning with you. This is such a timely text, a timely word from Paul to young Timothy as he is really passing the baton. And so uh, before we get into our text, because it's Family Sunday, we're going to have Archer come up, and Archer's going to read the text for us. Give it up for Archer. Are you ready? All right, I'm going to give you this mic, okay? Oh, he's going to give you that mic. Perfect. You want me to hold it for you? Because you've got to hold your Bible too, huh? Sure. Okay. All right, so we're in chapter 2. Yeah, you've got it highlighted. He's ready. All right, go Keep for it. reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is no value and it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that resurrection has already taken place and, the, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, his and, everyone. and everyone who confess the name of the Lord must turn away from the wickedness. Thank you, Archer. We threw some Hymenius and Philetus to him, some gangrene. He handled it like a pro. Very good. I could not read like that at that age. Um, I still can't read. No, I'm just kidding. Much more proficient now. Uh, the Bible does that for you. So if you're not good at reading, read the Bible. It'll help. There's a lot of weird words in there. Man, so we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 19, the section that Archer just read for us. And I want to give you a little bit of history on what's taking place here in the life of Paul the Apostle, who has penned the large majority of our New Testament scriptures. These are letters to uh, different churches, like we see Ephesians is a church to the church in Ephesus. Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes, two letters to the church in Corinth. And so we have this backdrop for our text. And the title of the message this morning is, Whose Approval Do You Seek? And so as we look at what Paul addresses to Timothy as he's passing the baton. And so when we look at where Paul is at, Paul is in jail. He is in what is called the Mamertine Prison. This is a place that you can go visit today. I've had the privilege of going to this place. I did a Life of Paul tour. I did his second missionary journey, which is what we're seeing unfold in Scripture now, conclude really in the text. And this is Paul's second missionary journey. I got the chance to go see these sites, study these places. I got to lead worship um, at some of these places. That was, it was just absolutely humbling to get to uh, the place where they believe Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount to get to sing together with believers. These places that exist, that are real. And may I just say as a side note this morning that your faith has historicity, legitimacy, and your faith is built on things that can be proven in fact and in historical records. So take 
comfort in that because your faith is much more than just myth as the world would like to accuse you of this morning. And I see that all the time. And really, they're foolish for thinking that because if they would do a little bit of research, people would start to see that the Bible is factual and there's evidence for the scriptures that we are reading now. And the very man that is pinning this letter to young Timothy, you can go see the jail cell. I wanna show it to you. So this is the the prison. Um, If you guys can put that first picture up there. And this is, um, actually go back one. Try to put them in order if I gave you. There we go. So here's the outside. Okay, so... Uh, We actually got to lead worship right there on those steps to the uh, right, and uh, we led worship, I got to lead worship there, and then we sang together, and then we went inside this uh, Maritarium, I say it wrong every time, it's okay, uh, prison, and so... This is a tourist attraction. You can also apparently get some, some uh, hamburgers and paninis. So that's cool too. Some gelato, all right, and a hot dog. So grab your hot dog and go inside and see where Paul was in prison when he wrote 2 Timothy. So there's a, a very good evidence that this is the place where Paul is writing these words. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a visual learner. I'm hands-on. And when I see something like this, it gives such bolstering to my faith. And it makes the text so real. And so this is the inside of the above ground of this prison modern day. So obviously the uh, little walkway with chain link and the roped off sections have been added, but uh, you cannot take flash photography in this place. They, they are trying to preserve it as best they can. There's uh, different artifacts in there that have been there for uh, you know, thousands of years. And so here is this place. And so you can see, I wish I had a little pointer, but you can see that little hole on the ground right there. You ever see that? Okay, so Paul, our brother Paul, is underneath that hole right now. So we go to the next photo. This is another angle. Okay, so you can see that staircase going down. That has been added for the sake of tourism today. And this room, to give you a little bit of size, I think it's probably about 15 by 15 at the most. It's a pretty small space. Um, And so you can go down, uh, I believe it's two at a time, can go down there, and you can go down these stairs, and you can go underneath, and this is what you will see when you go into this jail cell. The next photo, this is where Paul is at. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the Taj Mahal. This is, this is horrendous conditions. Um, this little ramp here is like me and one other dude about my size, and we're, we're barely squeezing in there to kind of preview this space. So this is Paul's environment as he writes this letter. Um, and I forgot to put the map in the images, but this is in close proximity to the Colosseum. Many of us know the Colosseum. Um, the Colosseum was where Nero and other Roman leaders, in order to distract the citizens of how bad Rome was falling apart at the seams uh, in history at this time, Rome is falling apart. They're in financial trouble. Um, they've obviously abandoned the Lord. So from a spiritual perspective, they're extremely unhealthy and it's to their own detriment that they have uh, done things that they've done. And now the Colosseum has become a source of entertainment. <clears throat> and so Christians are often taken to the Colosseum and they are, they are killed for game and entertainment. And Paul, very likely, is very aware of the fact that he is about to die. Under the Roman leadership right now, as a Christian, it's not good news. Paul's been arrested more times than he can probably count at this point. Beaten, persecuted, shipwrecked. He gives a list in a different place in the New Testament of all these things he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And now he finds himself in this tiny prison. Now the, the bottom cell here, this little, and they would drop you in through that hole. You can see it at the top of the image. I don't know if you could see it, but there's a little hole there. They would actually lower the prisoners in with a rope. And so there was no escaping this either. This was what would have been considered a more maximum security uh, holding cell or prison at this time. And so Paul is trapped in here. Um, excrement, you got to pee, you got you to gotta go number two. Your toilet is there, my friend. And you and as well as anyone else who is uh, being held in this jail cell. And I just want you to let that sink in for a moment, that this is the environment that our author is writing in. And then take the attitude that we see conveyed through the leading of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, what he's able to write and exhort. And I think that Paul is very aware of the fact that he is now passing the baton to young Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, I'm on my way out. And for you as a Christian at this time to know that Paul is imprisoned and uh, is likely to be executed in the near future, this has to be extremely disheartening. 
This would be like a big Christian leader in our day, and this still will not compare, um, who has really pioneered. I remember the day that Chuck Smith died. I, I went to the Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bible College, and I was abroad in England uh, when we got the news that uh, Pastor Chuck Smith had died. And Chuck had been a pioneer for the, the movement of Calvary Chapel, and they had a global impact for the, the kingdom of Christ and the gospel and the furtherance of the saints. And, and to, we were sitting in the classroom. It was about 8 in the morning. The lecture was about to start. And I remember my professor coming in, and Chuck had been really unhealthy. He had actually taught two days before at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He taught his last sermon with the oxygen mask on. And I remember Steve, my professor, coming in, and he just was really quiet. And it was like everybody already knew before he said anything. And Steve just looked at us as a small class, maybe 15 of us, and said, you guys, he's gone. And I remember that feeling and that, that moment of just, man, like somebody who has been such an ambassador for the kingdom of God, who's the reason that the school I'm at and the degree I have even exists and was able to be attained, this man is now gone. And Chuck was a man and he had flaws. But there's something about when a pioneer that God has used in such a mighty way passes, it's powerful. And so Timothy and other um, Christians have word that Paul is suffering and, and many of them probably have a sense that this may be Paul's last days. And this is indeed, we know, because of our historical records, that this is the last letter that Paul writes to Timothy. Paul begins his letter, um, you know, by admonishing him to do all sorts of fantastic things. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul says to be a uh, good steward with the good deposit that's been given to you. And he's referring to the gospel and he's referring to being a good ambassador for Christ. And now he turns the table and Uh, In light of these things, you could say, he starts to remind them now to be a worker approved by God. And so as Paul writes this letter, we now have his setting. We kind of understand the circumstances that he's in. And instead of complaining, he had all the, the right in the world to complain. And anybody would understand if Paul was complaining about his current situation. But instead, he focuses on building up the church and building up young Timothy, who has been in many ways, like a son to Paul, from what we can tell through the language in the text. There's a close relationship between these two. And earlier in the letter, in 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says, uh, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And you know, I just, before we even begin, I, I just want to say that, you know, this morning we look at a family Sunday. I know this is the early service, so there's not a ton of kids here because you'd have to be very brave to get your kids here this morning. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I ask you, who is your Timothy? Who's your Timothy? Do you have young people in your life that you pour into? Because, see, the picture that's painted actually in this scripture, there's a beautiful illustration that Paul gives of an outflow and a constant inflow. And for you, if you have a constant inflow of the word of God and the things of Christ, and you have no outpouring by which to pour into other people, You know what can happen? That water can start to become stagnant. And there's a beautiful picture of this and a very practical one, and that is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has fresh water that flows into it, but the Dead Sea has no outlet. So the salt content becomes so high because there's no filtration for that water and it becomes unable to sustain life. There's no fish or animals in that water because they can't live in that water. And so... There's a beautiful picture that's painted in scripture that you need to be being poured into and you need to be pouring out. And so I ask you this morning, who are you pouring into? When you soak in the word of God this morning, where do you then go and and invest in the kingdom? And I'm not talking about necessarily a formal mentorship and a mentoree because sometimes that can become a little bit toxic. I've seen that happen. But I am telling you that there is value and it's biblical that you would have people who are a little bit behind you in life who you can pour into and say, hey, I did it the wrong way. Let me tell you the right way to do it. Amen? Amen. And so I just challenge you with that this morning. Who are you mentoring? Who are you discipling? Because it is a call on your life as a Christian. Invest in the future of the church. So in verse 14, we look at our text. He says, remind them of these things. And this is referring to the idea of being an ambassador for the kingdom, being faithful to the call God has put on your life. Paul uses a picture early in this, in this chapter to say, uh, Roman soldiers don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Instead, they stay faithful to the duty that they have, right? And so there's this picture of staying the course, staying uh, according to the call that God has given you as a Christian, which is to further 
the gospel. And so he says, remind them of these things. This is the church in Ephesus that Timothy is overseeing. He says, remind the church of these things. Charge them before God not to what? To quarrel or to fight about words, which does how much good? No good. Does no good to quarrel over words, but only ruins the hearers. So he says, remind them of these things. Remind them to preach the gospel, to know what you believe, to stay faithful to the call God has placed on your life, to not get distracted by other things that are going on around you because it's so easy to do. And he says, look, Timothy, preach the gospel. Build up and equip. That is your sole job, is to edify the body of Christ as a pastor, as a leader, as a Christian. Edify the body. And how do we do it? Through the teaching of God's word. Continuing in verse 14, he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. The word here for word fighting, as he says, not to quarrel or about words, is like to wor- it's like a word fighting or a word wrangling. It's to sometimes fight over maybe semantics or to get into things that are secondary issues, that are peripheral issues, and we make them a primary issue when they really have no reason to, be sp- to spend so much time on maybe that particular issue. And so... He says, this type of conversation, you know, the idea is that it's somebody who engages with a desire to appear clever. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? No, just me? <laughs> you ever talk to somebody like that and you, you, you can tell by just the way you're talking to them, they couldn't care less about, like, helping you. They just want to show you how much they know, right? And you're like, wow, you're a real nice guy, you know? This is not helpful for me because you're just kind of, as my mother used to say, tooting your own horn, Right? And so there's this idea of people entering into debates or discussions with the desire to appear clever or to be crafty. Or to, and and the, the result of that is really that people become puffed up. I have two small of ears. This happens every time. Pastor Michael, we need to shrink his ears so I can have this fit me. Okay, and so the idea is that if you engage in this type of behavior, it will puff you up and it actually ruins those who listen to it. Now, have you ever been not maybe the person in the conversation, but you're the person listening to this type of conversation? What's usually your reaction? You're like, oh, my gosh. We get it, Joe. You know everything. Not Joe. You know, I see Joe. First name that came to mind. Joe does know a lot, though. But I don't, Joe doesn't strike me as arrogant at all. In fact, Joe's a perfect example of somebody who has a lot of knowledge of the Word of God, and he presents it in a humble manner, which is why I respect Joe. And I think that we need to enter into conversations with an attitude of humility, because I will tell you that a puffed up Christian who wants to come in guns a-blazing and tell everybody how it is is usually the very person that the world cannot stand. And I think there's a way to speak the truth of God's word with wisdom and with discernment and with uh, you know, intentionality and not push people away. And there will be times where no matter what you say, people are gonna hate what you have to say because you're teaching them the gospel and the gospel at its core is offensive because it calls out our sin. And so he says, don't argue or quarrel with each other. And then Paul gives two reasons why. So the first, he says, there's no benefit to be gained by arguing over irrelevant details of Scripture. You can see 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4 for another example of this, where Paul addresses it uh, earlier. So it's obviously a little bit of an issue in the church of Ephesus, right? And then um, Paul is suggesting that uh, taking a a shallow view of the Bible rather than, um, you know, trying to look at it on, at a deeper perspective. It just leads to nothing. It's, it's useless. Romans 14.1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him in. And, the, and then the exhortation in Romans is, but do not quarrel over opinion. So Paul hits on this multiple times. And you know what I find interesting? There's nothing new under the sun. Like all the issues that are being addressed in scripture are still very relevant right now. Like people still do this. And we make peripheral issues and we major on the minors, right? And then the majors kind of get left off to the side. And so we need to make sure that our focuses are in the right place. And Paul specifically had in mind the false teachers that he mentions in 1 Timothy. And these men would attempt to reinterpret the Torah seeking to make Christians obey Jewish laws. And, and you know, this is a secondary issue. And Paul is arguing about words that only ruin the hearers. John Calvin says this. He says, God's purpose is not to pander our inquisitiveness, but to give us profitable instruction So, listen to this. So, away with all speculations that produce no edification. I wonder how much time at pulpits in America is spent speculating. 
instead of edifying. Innovating instead of affirming God's word. How can we make the gospel more interesting so people will flood the sanctuary seats? I have an idea. Preach the word because it's powerful and you can't come up with anything better. You're not smarter than God. So just preach the word. It has been said that the Christian life is not easy, but it is a straightforward life. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The church can get so caught up in the small things, and the evangelical church is riddled with schisms and division. There's over 200 different sects of the Christian church to this day. People who are claiming to follow Christ, but, and some of those splits and schisms over time have been over necessary essential doctrines, but many of them have been over stupid things that don't matter. We have heard of church splits over the years over carpet color, over an elder at a church potluck getting a smaller piece of meat than a kid. And we laugh, but this is true. These are reasons why churches have actually split in America. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters in China would give anything to freely gather with a group of Christians. We need to take a step back and realize the freedoms that we have. And so Paul is very clear about uh, aiming towards the proper target. Timothy, uh, he says, Timothy, teach people to avoid bickering. Paul has addressed this issue so many times, and I think as his last letter, he says it one more time. He says, stop fighting amongst each other and just worry about furthering the gospel. Verse 15 says, do your best to present yourself to every person. No, that's not what it says. It says, do your best to present yourself to God. Who do you answer to, Christian? Do you answer to me? That's a question. No, I, I really hope not. And I don't answer to you. Now, I have respect for my brothers and sisters, and I respect authority that's given from the word of God, wisdom, but we answer to God alone. And this is in reference to approval, Right, So we're not going to take this context and get into cultish behaviors and say, you know, and I've dealt with this. We, many of us in this room have dealt with this where somebody's convinced they're the only one hearing from God. That's usually how cults start. That is not scriptural. That is contrary to scripture because in the proper context, what Paul is saying is in the midst of trying to seek approval, we only answer to the Lord. Okay? And so he's saying be a worker who has no need to be ashamed and rightly handles the word of truth. So we're gonna stand before the Lord and give an account for the things that we've done in this life. And I hope that that's very real to all of us because it's true. And not any man or leader or group of people will be the one that we stand before and have to answer to. It will be God Almighty who has given us clear instruction on how to fulfill the call on our life. And we answer to him alone. And so we see that when we start to make things about ourselves, that's usually when we get in trouble. Amen? The church begins to fall apart at the seams when we start to make Sunday morning about us. And I will say this, in the midst of our cultural climate and different tensions going on in our society, the church is not about celebrating you as an individual. The church is about Jesus Christ. It is not about celebrating your individual ethnicity, which we respect and we love and we welcome all people of all race. But that's not what Sunday morning is about. And there are people leaving the church right now in floods because they're not being celebrated. And the question is, why do you want to be celebrated? That is like going to somebody else's birthday party and being mad when no one gives you a gift. What do you mean nobody gave you a gift? It's not your birthday. And in the same way, far be it from us as a group of Christians to come into a place of worship where it's supposed to be all about Jesus and try to make it about us. I don't want to ever be in a position where I'm taking some of God's glory. Oh boy. Amen. And so we need to be a people that are aiming towards the target. And, you know, as we look at Philetus and Hymenaeus and these guys preaching a false doctrine. We don't know where they started. They might have started with good intentions. And if you kind of think of like an archer, right? Maybe they were aiming towards the target, but at some point they began to sway. And Paul uses the word swerve later in this text, away from the, initiated, the initial target and where they were trying to get to, and they've lost their way. 
And so we need to view the church correctly and biblically. We must seek God's approval alone. The church doesn't exist to celebrate you or who you are as individuals. The church is meant to celebrate Jesus Christ. And we can see this idea in Acts 17, one example of many. Acts 17, 26, uh, you know, addressing the, the church here, he says, that we might seek after him, that is God. It is not of ourselves that we can have our being. It's of the Lord. Our very being is of the Lord. Our very purpose is for his glory. So we must rightly handle the word of God. So now we get into this term, rightly handle. Well, what does it mean? Well, rightly handling is the word orthomeia, um, and I'm probably not saying that exactly right because I don't speak Greek, but that's okay. And so the English words that we get, you're going to recognize all of these, right? Orthopedic, orthodontist, orthodox, the list goes on. And the idea is keeping something straight. Now, when I go to my chiropractor, I'm not looking for a crooked outcome. I'm looking for him to cut it straight, okay? Amen? I got in a car accident a couple years ago, and I have low back issues because of it, and, you know, I have old guys coming, oh, you're too young to have back problems, you know? Like, you're right. I have nothing to say to you. You're absolutely right. I wish I didn't have back problems. I, I didn't ask for this. And so our chiropractor, you know, he comes in, and he says, let me kind of straighten you out, right? Maybe your parents said that to you growing up. Come here, boy, I'm gonna straighten you out, right? And that's the idea is to cut it straight. That's the picture that Paul is painting. That's the word that he uses in the Greek. And he uses this word in a couple other places in scripture. And he's saying, when it comes to exegeting the scriptures, there's two things that we do when we teach. We can either Jesus or we can exegesis. And exegesis is the proper way that we teach the scripture. That means that we let the scripture speak for itself. Okay, and so when you read the word, uh, I'm gonna challenge you, don't do this. Oh, so-and-so is really hurting with this area. I'm gonna find six scriptures that work right here. Okay, that's not bad, but you need to really make sure that that's the proper context of those scriptures. And this is not forcing my framework or even my presuppositions on the text, but instead the text letting it speak for itself. And we all can do this. And I have brothers who are more reformed in their theology, and we'll go back and forth between different discussions, and we'll talk about stuff, and we'll debate stuff. And the temptation on both sides sometimes is to try to force our presupposed ideas and our framework on the text and make it work for us. And on a bigger scale, aside from different theologies in the church right now, for you personally, when you're dealing with sin and temptation, isn't it so easy to begin to try to make God fit into your little box? To try to kind of make things work for you? man, this scripture really works really well for me, you know? And then you can't talk to people who take on this attitude because then they say, look, I know that you think that's what that scripture means, but that's not what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean in its proper context? What was the author's intent when he wrote that thing? Because if you do that, we could make a case for pretty much anything out of the Bible. You feel me? Like if we take any verse anywhere and we just like try to apply it to our life, willy-nilly and make sure that it just really fits our little agenda and what we want, man, it's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. And so we need to make sure that when we take scripture, we interpret it properly. We look at the context. That's why even the history and the setting is so helpful as we look at God's word. So don't compromise or bend. I think of a piece of paper, you know, if we had a, I was going to do this and I forgot to set it up, right? But you have a piece of paper with a straight line. Sometimes I think this is what happens at the pulpit and for young church leaders and even Christians alike. You're cutting that paper straight, and then somebody says, well, what about this issue? And you're like, well, I mean, I could kind of cut around that. And then they're like, well, and then maybe you get back on that line, and you're cutting straight again, and they're like, well, what about this issue? And you start to cut around that. And before you know it, you're cutting so straight. And now you've given a gospel that's broken and fragmented because you have not given it in its totality and in its proper context. And so we need to make sure that we do this. And this is a direct exhortation to a church leader. But for you as a Christian, you're not a pastor, maybe you're not a church leader. You still have a responsibility and a duty to make sure that you read God's word properly and you apply it to your life properly. And so Paul says in relation to ministry, in 1 Corinthians 3.14, his work uh, will be shown, that is, each one, uh, for what it is by fire, uh, it will test the quality, not the quantity. And I think uh, that's, a, that's me saying that. It will test the quality, not the quantity. And I think for us as church leaders, the temptation is, man, how do we get people into church on Sunday? How do we get people to this event? How do we get people to come to this? But at the end of the day, the ministry that you and I are called to is not gonna be measured by the quantity, but the quality of that ministry. 
It's not about discipling 18 young men every week. Maybe it's about finding one young man that needs direction, one young woman that needs direction and saying, can I pour into you and spend quality time with you in the word of God so that you can have direction and guidance for your life? That is far more impactful than trying to fill your plate with too much. Because it's often been said that when you do that, you do a lot of things you know, poorly or you can do a few things really well. And so let's, let's be intentional about that kind of thing. We must aim for God's approval. And there are so many issues at hand right now where the world wants you to fold. And it's happening. It's happening over and over again. Big churches in our, our area, in the Inland Empire, compromising on big things that I don't have time this morning to go down the list of compromise that I'm seeing right now. But one I will address is the woman pastorate. And look, I'm saying this that's going on the internet. I don't want to say this, but the scripture is pretty clear about women being pastors in the church. And I'm watching churches all around our cities and our nation compromise on this area. I am not a sexist. I love women. In fact, I'm married to a beautiful one. I see the value that they bring. They're absolutely smarter than us in so many ways. But I will tell you that scripture is very clear on this. And for some reason, this is an area because the world is pressuring the church. And I watched Vody Bauckham, who's somebody I very respect. He's a theologian and has a lot of good insight on the scripture. And he was interviewed on a TV uh, news station. And they just, oh my gosh, they just tore Vody Bauckham apart for taking this stance. They called him a sexist. They called him narrow-minded. The list of insults hurled at him. And you know what? Vody Bauckham stood his ground. You know what his response was? Funny enough, this just popped up on my Instagram page uh, in the midst of me studying for this. He said, I don't look for your guys' approval. I look for God's approval. So if you don't like what I have to say, you really don't like, you really don't have an issue with me. You have an issue with the Lord. Because he has said this in his word. And my job as a pastor, this is Vody Bauckham talking on national TV, said, my job as a pastor is to uphold the gospel. Not to pander to your every want and need and what you don't like and what you do like. Because when we start to do that, we start not cutting straight. And it becomes an utter mess, really. And that is one of many issues that I could talk about. This is just relevant because I just saw it. And, you know, if people have an issue with that, they have an issue with that. But I'm telling you, the scripture is very clear on it. And so we need to be good workmen, good workwomen, right? We need to be ambassadors for the kingdom. We need to be faithful to the call that God has placed on our life. This is just not, it just doesn't want to stay. It's also kind of like, Hooked on my jacket a little. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just going to teach like this. Like I'm on the phone. Okay, and so the world is going to think you're a fool, uh, kind of referencing what I just, the story I just told even Pastor Vody Bauckham, who's taken a stand for the, the things of Christ. And I want to remind you of this verse that's actually right behind you. If you want to look at it, you can. 1 Corinthians 1.18. What does it say? It says, the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. That's a powerful verse. And it has a lot to do with what we're talking about because Timothy is gonna be tempted to not take a stand and to kind of just yield to what people want because they're gonna say, what a fool. What an idiot. I've been called that many times. A little bit of my testimony. I went to a public, a public school my whole life. I'm so thankful that my parents put me in public school. It's very different now. I graduated high school 10 years ago. Things have changed a lot. I don't know if I'd put my kids in public school anymore, but I'm really thankful that my parents put me in public school because I was definitely not blind to the world. I worked real jobs from the time I was 13. My dad believed that if I wanted money, I could go find a, play, a place to make it. I didn't have allowance growing up. And my parents weren't super strict, but those were just certain things my dad was big on. And I'll tell you, I was pretty ridiculed and belittled for my faith. Uh, primarily through my high school years. I played baseball. I have not really shared this with the church before. I, I played baseball um, the first three years of high school. My senior year, I was pretty done. Um, I was pretty gassed. Just on a physical level, I had, had a couple injuries. Um, I'd played baseball my whole life. At that point, it had been you know, six, maybe 15 straight years of sports, baseball with no break. And um, the Lord was certainly calling me out of that. I had aspirations to play at UCLA or, you know, Cal State Fullerton, and I don't even know, I don't think I was good enough anyway. But um, I think if I kept trying, I might have had a shot. But 
the, the point is that God pulled me out of that. Uh, actually, I got hurt. I tore two ligaments in my left ankle. And uh, during that time I was on crutches is actually when I took an interest in playing guitar. Um, the youth group at the time needed a worship leader. And so I ended up helping lead worship. And I remember the first time Pastor Brian, who actually is in town right now, he looked at me. He gave me the, he's one of the first people who gave me an opportunity to uh, teach and lead worship. And he looked at me and he said, I think you should sing. <laughs> and I was like, ah, yeah, sure. That's funny. Right? Like, I sing in the shower. Okay, brother? And I'm serious. Like, I, I was uh, 17 at the time. I had no idea that I could really sing. Um, and the Lord began to cultivate uh, a passion for, for music ministry and for leading uh, the, the church. And I remember Sam Marietta, Sam Marietta, who is a dear uh, friend of mine, actually um, just had open heart surgery. Please be praying for Sam. He's doing okay. Um, Sam Marietta at the time was a worship leader at our church. And uh, he was the first person to give me an opportunity to lead on a Sunday morning. He believed in me as a young man. And this is why this is so near and dear to me. I love the relationship you see between Paul and Timothy. He believed in a young man. And the church does enough of tearing apart young people. Let me tell you from experience. And Paul believed in this young man and said, look, I believe in you, but I also know that you're a sinner. So I'm going to give you clear direction. And Paul, uh, Sam came to me uh, on a Wednesday night after youth group, I remember, and he said, hey, you want to lead worship on Sunday? It's Wednesday night, right? And um, I was like, yeah, sure. So he gave me one song. I messed up the timing. I sang it terribly. Um, and then I, it's a process from there, right? <laughs> and, uh, but I appreciate the fact that somebody believed in me and saw something in, in myself that maybe I didn't even see. And, you know, but I, I bring that up because my experience in high school was not one I would ever want anyone to have to live through. I would never want to live through that again. I hated high school with a passion. Um, I, went to, I went to school most days to play baseball, quite honestly. I mean, I had decent grades. I, I got A's and B's through school, but um, chemistry and geometry were just not my thing. I was just like, man, I don't. I remember my chemistry teacher in uh, high school, I dropped out of chemistry the second semester of uh, uh, my junior year, and my chemistry teacher, you know, I had already taken algebra two twice because I failed it the first time. Uh, there's something about algebra that does not work in this brain, let me tell you. And so I went to my chemistry teacher, and I was just going to TA. I was like, I'm just going to be a teacher's assistant. I'm going to hang out. At this point, I was pretty sure I was going to go to Bible college. I kind of had a trajectory for my future, which I'm super thankful for. And um, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to drop this class. And she said, uh, she said to me, honey, you need this class. And I was like, I promise I don't need this class. Like... <laughs> If I need to know how to bake a cake, I'll just Google it real quick. Like, and so chemistry was not for me. And so she said to me, you know, she basically told me I was going to fail uh, at life, like if I didn't have these skill sets. And I said, well, I want to be in ministry. And she said, somebody needs to know how to count the tithes. And that was like her response to me. Didn't really make much sense. But, uh, you know, so funny enough, we did a ministry thing at my high school um, years later, probably, probably this couple of years ago, so like maybe six, seven years later, I had graduated and done with college, and I came back, and I, I was leading worship for an event we were doing as a church there, and it was in her classroom. She was the host of the event, and I, I kind of looked at her, and I was like, do you remember me? And this is not one of my more holy moments, but I was like, yeah, yeah, you told me I, was, I wasn't going to amount to anything because I didn't take chemistry. I work at a church now. I'm a pastor there. Uh, I'm doing good. Yeah, God is good. You know, and it was like a little, that was probably not very holy of me. But we just kind of laughed about it. We just laughed about it. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be mean. But um, my high school experience was not great. And uh, I, was, I was made fun of pretty ruthlessly uh, through high school. I had nicknames that I cannot repeat from a pulpit um, re directly regarding my faith. That was really all they had on me was the fact that I was a Christian. It was a squad of about 65 guys, and I was one of two Christians. I knew the other guy, and, you know, he was pretty quiet about his faith, a quieter guy. And uh, it, was, it was tough. And I will say this, not to toot my own horn, as my mother would say, but to tell you that God works through those moments because I've had guys now over the last several years come back to me and say, bro, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you in high school because I was just like going with the flow, whatever everybody else was doing. And some of them have even asked about the church. And I will tell you that somebody I've played baseball with most of my life overdosed a couple of years ago and his family and my family have a long standing relationship and we ended up having that young man's funeral. I grew up with this young man, Cody, um, and we had his funeral here and a lot of the guys that were 
absolute thorns in my side through high school were sitting in these pews and I sang at that funeral. And I'll tell you, to watch something come full circle like that and to have an opportunity to preach the gospel to the very men that were oftentimes the thing I despised the most about my high school experience was pretty interesting. And so I tell you, stand firm because God can work through that. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing and they're gonna call you a fool. And can I remind you that you as a Christian are a Christ follower and uh, that means that you follow after Christ and Christ himself said that they hated me, they will also hate you. It wasn't like a suggestion or like a possibility. He said, they're gonna hate you. So let's not be surprised when the world hates what we have to say. And I don't mean that you walk around looking for trouble because that's actually very contrary to our text this morning. But I mean, just stand firm. 16 through 18, let's look at it real quick. He says, but avoid irreverent babbles for it will lead, to people, lead people into more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. This is a disgusting picture, and it's meant to be disgusting. He uses strong language to talk about what this type of behavior does to the body. Gangrene is a skin tissue-eating disease that eats away at the body, and if it's not dealt with, it will eat away at the whole body until the victim is dead. That is a picture of what bad theology, bad doctrine, slandering, and quarreling does to God's body. It eats away at it, and it can kill the very thing that we're supposed to be protecting. So we need to deal with it swiftly. He says, avoid irrelevant babble, or you could say, the NLT reads, foolish or worthless talk. Clear instruction to avoid pointless conversation that will ultimately lead to ungodliness. And then he continues and he says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He goes as far as to name these guys. And this is not the first time that we see Hymenaeus. He just has a new sidekick now teaching the same heresy. And Paul says, don't give any attention to that guy because he's, he's the, that doctrine and the false teachings that he's spreading are dangerous to the body of Christ. Have nothing to do with him. And we need to be the same way. If we see false doctrine and teachings about Jesus that are not true, we need to have nothing to do with it. You don't have somebody who has gangrene, and this is a disgusting picture, but I was listening to a message from Alistair Begg, and in his Scottish accent, he said, that's not something you smear on your toast. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's disgusting. But he was saying... That's, it's disgusting. You don't want anything to do with that, right? It's something you deal with with gloves and a mask and you say, we need to take care of this. We can't deal with this because we need to deal with this. We can't have this continue because it's detrimental to the body of Christ. And that's really the picture that's painted here is that it will, it will lead to death if it's not dealt with. False doctrines and bad theology are so, uh, so detrimental if they go unchecked in the church. And this is why we need to exegete the scriptures properly. These men have missed the target. And they're teaching, uh, you know, we don't need to get into what they were teaching because at the, bottom, the end of the day, bottom line is they were teaching heresy. They were teaching something contrary to the gospel of Jesus. But the text says that they were teaching that the resurrection, this is referring to the second resurrection, has already happened. This could be like a kingdom now theology. It's possible that they were Gnostics um, and there's dangerous teachings that came with that. You could basically do whatever you wanted with your body because you were just a spirit and um, a whole slew of problems that could come out of this. And so, Paul addresses it with much seriousness and says, have nothing to do with it, have nothing to do with their teaching. 18 says, they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. And I, I wanna just hit on this word for a minute because he says what? He says, they have swerved from the truth. How many of you have ever swerved your vehicle on the road? You're going somewhere and you're going maybe a, a higher rate of speed and you swerve. Does anybody, has anybody experienced this where your car starts going, and it's just like that inertia and that weight and all the motion that's moving forward starts to fight against each other and the car is literally rocking back and forth from side to side. I had an experience like this uh, in high school. I was driving on a dark road up by Lake Matthews and a dog was walking down the middle of the street and I was probably going like 55 miles an hour and I swerved to go around the dog, which is like the worst thing you can do. And that's the picture here. I didn't hit the dog, okay, if you're worried. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be tearing up if I'd hit the dog, all right? And so th th that's the picture here is that they've swerved from the truth. They were, maybe they were on the straight and narrow. They, were, they started out right. They had good intentions, but they've swerved away. And maybe some of you in this room this morning have swerved from the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's in conversation and relationships with family members or friends or coworkers where you continue to compromise and not speak truth because you're afraid of what they might say about you. You're afraid of what they might think of you. 
But I will tell you that you have a call on your life to uphold the good news of Jesus Christ. And you will watch sometimes, not all the time, but many times, that will return, not void. It will plant seeds, and God can water those seeds, and he can use other people to bring that to fruition. And people's lives can be changed. Their eternal destiny can be changed because of maybe one thing that you decided to take a stand on and say, no, I can't cave on this because the Bible is clear about it. And I don't answer to you. I answer to the Lord. I seek his approval. And so... There's this idea of swerving from the truth. And, and Paul uses this word catastrophe, and he says that this ends in catastrophe if it keeps going. If you continue to do this, the word in the Greek is it will utterly destroy the church. And so bad theology is rampant in our churches right now. I challenge you as believers that when you go and listen to sermons online, make sure that the men that you listen to are godly men who are teaching proper doctrine. And if you ever have questions, come talk to us as pastors because we don't want you to go and be fed by somebody who's telling lies. And I will tell you too that the Holy Spirit within you, listen to him because sometimes when you hear heresy, the Holy Spirit's like, ding, 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 that's wrong. Alistair Begg told a story of, uh, he was a young pastor in the ministry, he was uh, growing in his pastorate and uh, he went to, a, he had heard stories of this large man, this large bearded man, he lived in Scotland at the time, who was sick, so he hadn't been to church, but um, <laughs> this story, I wish I could tell it as good as him, but he uh, said that he goes to this guy's house, he's a young pastor, he's supposed to teach um, and start teaching more regularly, and the elders of the church take him to visit this guy, they, uh, this guy was an elder in the church, had a lot of passion, and he was this big burly man, Alistair said, and Alistair's pretty small, and he, he said that he went into this guy's house and he had a big stick next to his uh, chair. And Alistair said it was a little concerning, you know. And he goes in and the guy started to, you know, tell him, you know, I'm going to be listening when I'm sitting in the pews. And the guy said, you know, if you ever start to go sideways, I'll rattle this amongst the pews and say, heresy! <laughs> and maybe some of us need some of you to keep us in check sometimes. Maybe somebody needs to bring in a yardstick and, Heresy! I hope that never has to happen here. But man, what's some, that's some pressure to make sure that you teach the word of God properly. A big Scottishman ready to call you out at any moment. Good theology is of the utmost importance. Everybody has theology, just so you know, but some people's theology is just really bad. Because everybody has a perspective of God. The most hardcore atheist that you know, I'll tell you, the scripture says that he knows in the depths of his soul that there's a God. And his theology is just really bad. And so what is your theology like this morning? Is it theology that's based and built on the scripture and the truth of who God is and the way he's defined in here? Or is it squeezed into your own little world and your own framework so that you can continue to sin and compromise? Because a holy God calls for a holy people. That's to be set apart. The word holy literally means to be set apart. Are you set apart? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My people are not of this world. And so when the world hates you, know that they hated me first. Evan Wickham, Phil Wickham's brother, nobody knows about Evan. I feel bad for Evan. Evan's great. He writes good songs. He's a pastor. He posted something um, on Instagram the other day, and it really struck me. He said 10 takeaways from uh, 2020 and 2021. And at the bottom of his list, he said, uh, he said, it's become clear that our culture, this is one of his takeaways, it's become clear that people in our culture value people who sell toilet paper more than me as a pastor. And then he said, this gives me great comfort because I'm in good company with Paul and Jesus and more. And I thought, hmm, our Lord came to his own and he was rejected by his own. They murdered him on a cross because they did not like the fact that he called sin for what it was. And people right now in our world, current day, are being persecuted and even put to death for their faith. Have you counted the cost as a Christian? Have you really counted the cost and said, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to stand firm on the things of Christ? There's overarching themes in this text, in this letter to Timothy. Paul is saying, count the cost, be a good workman approved, seek only God's approval. And so seek the Lord's approval alone this morning. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Peter says in 2 Peter 
referring to the good news of Christ, I will always remind you of these things even though you already know them. Matt Chandler in the, the movie American Gospel says in an interview that he went to a church one time and he was going to speak and one of the pastors said, what are you going to speak on, Pastor Matt? And he said, I'm going to teach the gospel. And the pastor's response was, well, Matt, most of the people here are actually Christians. And Matt Chandler's response was great. He said, yeah, I know, I'm still going to teach the gospel because they need to hear it. You and I cannot grow weary of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that it would never fall on deaf ears, that it would never become dull to us because it is life-saving, it is full of power. And if it's growing dull to you, it's not because it's become boring. It's because you've lost interest and you swerved. So get back on the right path because the word of God is powerful. Our last verse, we're closing now, says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. These are references to Old Testament passages that we'll uh, touch on real quick. He says, uh, the first quotation you can see in your text, it's in quotes. Paul's referencing um, Numbers 16, 26, more than likely. We don't know for sure, but it, it does seem that he's referencing this passage. Um, sorry, this first one is Numbers 16, 5. Um, the Lord knows who are his. This is from Numbers. Uh, the Lord knows who are his, and Paul affirms that God knows who are truly believers in Christ. False teachers may be persuasive to some, but not to God. And then he references another Old Testament passage, and he says, And let everyone whose name is in the name, who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. This is a reference more than likely to Numbers 16, 26, which best fits the context of this passage, which is a place where the Israelites are commanded to separate from Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Um, and that's because these men have rebelled against the Lord. And in that story, it's a physical, literal separation. Like, get away from them because the judgment of God is about to fall on them. Isn't that an interesting place to land this morning? That we are not to associate with false teachers because the judgment of God is upon them. And I don't want anything to do with that. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with that. And so I'm very thankful to be a part of this leadership at this church, not in a prideful manner, but because I know that we're grounded on God's word. And so I pray that we never stray from that, and I hope that any single one of you would come and call us out if we ever start to do that, because we need to stay on the, the straight and narrow path and give people the whole gospel, not just the parts that we like. We need to give them the whole gospel. My last thought for you is, and the team, worship team, band, you guys can come on up. He says, uh, I just want to ask you this. Have you made a decision who you're going to serve? Like, You've made a decision. I'm going to serve Christ no matter what comes my way. I'm not asking you, are you doing it perfectly? I'm asking you, have you already resolved? In uh, Daniel, when Daniel is taken into captivity in Babylon, this is one of my favorite sections of scripture. This young man, probably 16, 17 years old, and his friends are taken into captivity. They're brought in, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to feed them unholy food that goes against what the Lord has commanded them at that time in that context. And it says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food. And this is a question I have for you. Have you already purposed in your heart? That means that before the temptation comes, before the temptation to swerve, to compromise comes, have you already purposed in your heart that you're not gonna do it? Or are you caught by surprise and constantly, Pastor Mike Rizzi always says this, are we in reactive mode or are we in proactive mode? Are you proactive in your faith against temptation and against swaying and compromising or are you reactive? We need to purpose in our heart to seek God's approval and no one else's. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that we get to be here, the fact that we have the freedom to gather in this place. And Lord, I just pray that the temptation for us is always gonna come to compromise. It's always gonna be there as long as we're in this flesh. But I pray that you would build us up this morning. Thank you for your word that it never returns void, that it's powerful and it pierces the hearts of every person that hears it. And I pray that you would just continue to build us up, that we would be a people that know what we believe and why we believe it, and we would take confidence in who you are, that the very cornerstone of our faith, which is what these men are questioning in this text, and that's why Paul takes it so seriously, the very cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. His resurrection, his conquering of sin and death, the reason that we have life and a second chance. And so I just pray that we would take confidence in that and that we would stay faithful to that. We just thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.